We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Xin Sheng of the New Power Party. Hello, everyone. And New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. Tonight we'll be discussing approval of a two billion U.S. dollar arms package to Taiwan, charges that President Tsai Ing-wen has committed a malfeasant act, the Premier being asked to make a final decision on a public sector pay hike, the end of a dispute over a sculptured globe on display at the London School of Economics, and tax breaks for companies that invest in professional sporting teams here in Taiwan. But we'll begin at the beginning, and that being the latest 2020 primary news. And the KMT's presidential primary poll kicked off on Monday evening and this week and will continue until this Sunday. The KMT says the survey is being conducted by five polling institutions and they include the Taiwan Real Survey Group, TVBS and Shershin University, with each of the five collecting 3,000 valid responses via landline phone calls. The polls are comparing the popularity of the five presidential hopefuls against each other, which accounts for 15% of the final polling results. And the polls also pitting each of the five candidates in a rather hypothetical three-way race at the moment against President Tsai Ing-wen and Taipei City Mayor Ke Wen-je, which accounts for 85% of the final polling results. Now, the calls are being made randomly between 6.30pm and 10pm, and the results will be made public next Monday and then submitted to the party's Central Standing Committee for ratification on July the 17th. And the KMT has said that it will formally name its 2020 presidential candidate at its National Congress on July the 28th. Now, the five candidates competing for the party's presidential nomination are, of course, Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu, Honhai founder and former chairman Terry Guo, former new Taipei City Mayor Eric Ju, former Taipei County Commissioner Zhou Shi Wei, and National Taiwan University Professor Zhang Ya Zhong. Now, we're going to get our crystal balls out here in the studio now as we talk about who's going to win and who's going to lose. So, Xiao, can we, you think we could automatically remove at least two of those people from the who's going to win list? Oh, I think we can uh, remove more than two. Um, I think the only uh, viable candidate right now is uh, um, Han Guoyu and Terry Kwon. They are running neck and neck, um, although some recent polls showing that um, Han Guoyu is leading comfortably. Um, so if, um, you know, it's pretty interesting if I have to, you know, put my money in a wager, I would probably say Han Guoyu is looking very good to win the uh, nomination. Um so uh, there's very many debates, you know, for example, among the supporters of Tsai Ing-wen on who uh, is a, a better, you know, candidate to face. I mean, <laughs> there's some some people say that um, Han Guoyu is, uh, is a better candidate because you just don't want to run against a, a giant bag of money because Terry Gore has been uh, rumored to spend up to about um, one billion Taiwan dollars in these primaries alone. So um, although, I mean... People already know who Terry Goy is. He's already very famous, but he's spending uh, a obscene amount of money just to make sure everybody in Taiwan knows he's running uh, in this primary election. So, um, but of course, there are some camps are saying that uh, Terry Goy is a is a better opponent to face for uh, President Tsai because when um, Terry Goy wins the nomination, the election will be about the. Uh, uh, the economy, um, probably, and 
in debating about the merits of you know economic policies is much better than you know just throwing garbage at each other when Hangoyu wins the nomination because um, in fighting with Hangoyu it's very hard to debate any substantial you know issues uh, you just have to um, debate some whether how and if he's going to make you know Taiwan rich so that is something that we will see what turns out and earlier before we went on the live on the show you, you mentioned that I mean a debate between President Tsai Ing-wen and Han Guoyu could be like a debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump because Hillary Clinton clearly won the debates but Donald Trump won the election exactly so when, if the presidential debate is taking place between um, Tsai Ing-wen and Han Guoyu um, as I just mentioned it will not be on any you know substantive issues um, they will be just be you know uh, throwing garbage at each other and then just all our war to make sure that people see, I mean, who is a better leader. So it, it's very interesting. So the, the the winner of the debate is probably nice, going to be the, the winner of the election. <laughs> yeah, and it is quite interesting because um, Han has benefited from, I think, the constant media coverage of him since the last set of elections. And that even with Terry Go running now, he has to put a lot of money into it to kind of, you know, boost his standing. Uh, he announced his candidacy rather late. And, you know, there's also the perception that maybe he entered the race in order to preserve the stability of the KMT that maybe Udwini asked him to run. And Han, on the other hand, is a destabilizing force within the KMT. He has backers. Um, of the KMT candidates, I think he's the only one who can really mobilize tens of thousands to suddenly appear on Ketagon Boulevard in support of him. And he's been going around having these rallies and so forth. And again, it is a question just... Are people just voting him for him out of you know this kind of fixation on him, or just because of or because of his policy? And it does seem like he has these uh, this kind of like personal support. I mean, a lot of Han supporters are unable to explain why they support him. Uh, you know, in the debate, actually, a lot of it is just you know the KMT candidates didn't actually distinguish themselves from each other. It's just that you know we have we're different on the basis of our credentials and our background, and this is why you should vote for one candidate or another. And so it is between Go and Han. Uh, I think Han does seem to have the advantage, but it's also just very hard to say because Go, again, has such resources, and he's putting a lot of money now visibly into advertising, uh, just trying to achieve that same uh, you know, omnipresence in the media that Han has had for a long time. But could we write off Eric Jew? Um, I think probably. <laughs> it's interesting because he is actually uh, supported by young people within the KMT who view him as, I guess, more... Uh, more supportive of young people or understanding of young people's you know needs or whatever. Um, he is a little bit younger than the other candidates, but around the same age. I think it's just the demographic he's trying to appeal to. And he actually, in the debates, for example, he has stressed party unity as important to that. You know, whoever wins has to the party has to support that person, and they can't split because there's a real possibility that whoever loses, they will allege, let's say, the results are illegitimate, or that they could just go off on their own and try to build something independent. I mean, Han has the independent standing to actually break from the party hierarchy. Um, and also Terry Goh is money, and so he could just run his own campaign without the party. I mean, Terry Goh running as an independent, Xiao. Yeah, I mean, uh, people are talking about um, Terry Goh, if he loses the primary, he might still run anyway and being an independent because he is uh, he has so much money, he doesn't really need any party machine to back him up. Um, and it's very likely that would happen. But I've also heard um, rumors that there are already some people higher up that's making sure that doesn't happen. So we'll see um, what he thinks after the elections ended, the primaries ended. 
And there's all the speculation about who would be the vice president of either one. Let's say you try to get Wang Jingping or Ke Wenzhe or whoever, or James Song or someone like that. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a question, just, you know, what combination will enter the election and how will that shape the results? And will um, someone try to break from the party and, and run as independent in a way that maybe ultimately is detrimental to the KMP's chances? Um, and so it's also just uh, there's the kind of competition between Terry Go and Tsai Ngang the uh, the head of Want Want who is Taiwan's richest man, Terry Go, and Taiwan's second richest man, Tsai. And the thing is, Tsai backs Han Guoyu. And so there, there's this kind of this conflict here. And, and Go recently alleges that if Han wins, then Tsai will become named the chair of the, the, the KMT. And do you really want that? Because he's all pro-China. And actually, it's, it's very interesting, too, that Hong Kong has become an issue suddenly within this KMT debate, that all the KMT candidates have to backslide and claim somehow they support democracy in Hong Kong and, and that kind of thing. Um, so a lot of you know, last-minute wrinkles. And that's, that's very interesting to see in terms of polling. And that will actually reveal, I think, how the campy stands politically right now. Is it actually unified or is it actually still fractured along these lines? Yeah, I mean, whoever wins the primary, I mean, as a political junkie, I would one thing's for sure that um, the KMT primary is much more exciting than the DPP primary. Oh, that's right. <laughs> even, <laughs> even though the DPP primary was dragged out somewhat. Yeah, it was dragged out, but it's against two people who are just very close. Similar, and, and, too yeah, similar. Yeah, very similar, similar yeah. yeah. So it's, there's not much to see. And Brian, so we'll, we'll completely scrub off Zhou Xiwei and Zhang Yajong. I think so. And I, I think sometimes there's, a, <laughs> to be blunt, but I think that uh, sometimes there's the tendency of a politician that actually runs in primaries just to build their standing down the line. Um, you know, Han was actually an interesting example because he tried to run for chair of the KMT and he didn't have a chance of winning, but eventually he got to run for mayor of Kaohsiung. And then now we can see how he built himself up. And there's also the precedent in past years of uh, people running for president or competing in the primary and unexpectedly becoming a superstar, such as Hong Xiuzhu. So you try to get your name in there sometimes. Right, moving on now, and President Tsai Ing-wen this week, as well as Defence and Foreign Ministry officials, were thanking the Trump administration for approving a 2.2 billion US dollar arms package to Taiwan. Now, the weapons package included Abrams' main battle tanks, Stinger missiles and other missiles, as well as related equipment. Now, writing on our Facebook page, Tsai said the weapons systems will strengthen Taiwan's national defence capacity, deter potential military threats and ensure peace in the Taiwan Strait and the wider region. While the Ministry of National Defence says it showed that Washington has moved to normalise arms sales to the island. But, of course, Beijing was still bellyaching about it, as it does most of the time, with China's foreign ministry spokesman, Gang Shuang, demanding the US immediately cancel the deal and stop military relations with Taipei to avoid damaging Sino-US relations and harming peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. One could argue, question, in fact, who is actually harming peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait, but we'll get to there in a minute. So, Brian, a big arms deal, but, of course, tanks have been a bit of a question. Does Taiwan need main battle tanks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a question. I think there's always these, uh, this, these debates regarding the arms purchase and what do you need and what don't you need. I mean, it's, if it's not tanks, it's, it's missiles or it's airplanes or it's submarines and, and that kind of thing. And sometimes the KMT will actually use that as a kind of political wedge by claiming, why are you buying all these unnecessary things? Um, you know, Terry Goh, for example, claims that. And this, it's interesting because this is the, the biggest arms sale so far under the Trump administration, and it comes at a very interesting timing uh, with regards to the U.S.-China trade war, uh, events in Hong Kong, uh, tensions just between, um, you know, for example, the condemnation of China because of the mass attention of Uyghurs in Xinjiang by 22 nations, if I call, recall correctly. Um, and so, of course, China will view this as provocative, but there's not much it can do at this point. Um, it is interesting that, that the, it, there has been an increase in, in U.S.-Taiwan ties. Uh, Tsai is slated to visit the U.S. and so forth. And so um, it, this just continues that tendency. 
Yeah, so I mean, on the face of it, the U.S. is just adhering to the pledge in the Taiwan Relations Act, right? So it says that uh, the U.S. is obligated to provide, you know, sufficient defense mechanism for uh, Taiwan. Um, but to approve the arms sales now, it's uh, it's really a, a slap on the wrist of China because they are still ongoing the uh, the trade talks. A lot of negotiations are going on, and then to approve the arms sales now, it it's, can be seen as a as really uh, aggressive move and in the U.S. part. Um, and then recently, there's just an op-ed piece in Washington Post titled uh, "China is Not the Enemy," and it's been signed by many scholars in Washington, saying that um, the U.S. should not be so aggressive on, on China, and then uh, a free and, and prosperous China can always be a uh, uh, a China. They would, you know, eventually undergo a democratic revolutions, and it, it's it's a uh, so the arms, arms sales now is pretty much like a, a saying a no to that up at that the, the, the Washington right now is choosing to be um, very hawkish and then trying to distance itself from China and making sure that um, they, they supply the enough arms to Taiwan and also they want to make sure that China is you know, adhering to a fair and pra- trade practices. So this all can be seen as a, as a, as aggressive move in the, from Washington. But Brian, do you think it was very aggressive? Of course, if they were to be more aggressive, they could have included jet fighters, namely F-16V fighters. And that's true. And so there's a question of sometimes are these sales are some measures within these sales symbolic more than actually substantive in terms of what Taiwan's national defense needs are. And so I think sometimes um, with the government, you know, they always they don't always get, the Taiwanese government doesn't always get every single one of its requests for defense purposes approved. And sometimes when you have an arms sale, sometimes you do just have to take what the U.S. gives you. Um, and that is that is sometimes an object of criticism. And um, but it is it is something the government will take anyway, just in order to ensure to, to have the to demonstrate that U.S. Taiwan relations are getting stronger. Um, I mean, there's some question regarding whether this is a potential uh, move within the trade war. For example, China calls on the U.S. to suspend the the, the sales. Uh, it is possible that this would be a condition that the U.S. would negotiate on. Uh, for example, there are reports that Trump decided not he doesn't not want to mention Hong Kong in upcoming uh, discussions with China in order to avoid um, you know the possibility that that will interfere with a potential deal. Yet at the same time, this comes as as this arms deal, and so it's very interesting. It, it's kind of a a little unclear to me what the U.S. Is, is aiming for. But in the meantime, I think that it is otherwise it does continue this pattern of, of strengthening support for Taiwan and um, visible signs of that. Right, I mean, because the, the last arms sale is, is in 2017, right? So it's a, it's so, but whether it's it's a, a DPP or a KMT administration, I mean, the arms sale has been a long transition from the U.S. So, I mean, it's pretty, um, pretty, you know, doesn't prove anything if a KMT is attacking Taiwan administration for uh, being uh, being you know accepting the arms sales because the you know the the Taiwan's military is degrading um, very rapidly and the the military equipment does need a lot of upgrades so not only the tanks the missiles and also the air fighter jets so in order to maintain a certain level of uh, defense abilities I mean the the arms sales are a really crucial part of uh, any defense strategy. 
And Brian, what about tying Wen's let's build up the indigenous defence industry? I think so. I think that's very interesting because there is the calls for self-reliance in Taiwan, I think particularly in the age of the US-China trade war. And so how do you do that? Um, the, one of the notions would be to build up your indigenous defense uh, industry and so that you don't have to rely on other countries. Um, in truth, I think that a lot of that is just talk because you know oftentimes you're actually still relying on parts which would still come from American companies. Um, and so I'm not too sure if that's actually just uh, if that is just uh, if it's actually significant in any way. But I think that is responding to these kind of criticisms that do come from the Pan Blue camp, for example, that you are relying too much on the U.S. and only the U.S. and not trying to kind of balance both sides, or that sometimes your arms purchases are expensive, but they might not be useful, or that sometimes you're spending money on unnecessary equipment. And it's a very odd criticism coming from the KMT, because, again, they do also purchase arms from the U.S., uh, but I think also just the kind of the, the claim that Taiwan can build up an indigenous defense industry that's not reliant on other countries is probably not too realistic. Right. I want to just make sure that the the, 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 in, the defense industry, because um, in the past there will be rumors that some you know ships have been built by, by firms that has ties to with Chinese money. Yeah. So that's something that's very dangerous. We should look, mm-hmm. make sure. And that's that, actually yeah. the irony too, that sometimes if it is indigenous, uh, indigenous defense industry, uh, industry is building ships or planes or what have you, there's also the possibility that they're actually leaking information to China because of these uh, issues with infiltration in Taiwan. And that is, that is a big issue. And, and uh, there's also a lot of murkiness and corruption in terms of the tender process for construction of military equipment in Taiwan, as with you know, many parts of government, unfortunately. Right now, President Tsai Ing-wen is in New York today, Friday today, our time. She got there this morning, our time, in fact, and she was greeted at the airport by James Moriarty, the head of the American Institute in Taiwan, and Taiwan's top envoy to the United States, Stanley Gao. Now, Tsai is in New York on a two-day stopover before she heads to the Caribbean this week, and she'll be visiting Haiti, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and St. Lucia. Now, the trip, which is being dubbed Tour for Freedom, Democracy, and sustainability. Well, there you go, it's on, and she's coming back to Taiwan on July the 19th after transiting in Denver, which we talked about last week, of course. But the trip comes amid a bit of a stink over claims by the KMT that Tsai has been referring to herself by the incorrect title. Now, the KMT's Legislative Caucus on Tuesday of this week charged Tsai with a malfeasant act that the KMT says shows she's no longer fit for her job, and they also said she should back out of next year's presidential election. Now, Tsai alleged crime, while that being referring to herself as President of Taiwan ROC. In a letter congratulating Elan and the city of Rockville in the United States state of Maryland on becoming sister cities. Now, KMT caucus whip William Tsung this week claimed that Tsai is seeking to change the island's title from the Republic of China to Taiwan, and he's calling for the Control UN to investigate the matter. So, Xiao, should the Control UN investigate the matter? Is Tsai Ing-wen trying to change the island's name or is she just, you know, saying things generally? I think she's using the uh, international convention in referring to uh, Taiwan or ROC. Um, incidentally, I was actually in Rockville when uh, the local Taiwanese communities are pushing to sign the sister city deal with Elon. Um, so I saw firsthand, you know, how how many Taiwanese in, in the local community come out and support the uh the the, the, the the deal and then how many Chinese in the local community came out and then tried to sabotage the deal. So it's very 
you know, odd to see that KMT is uh, is not congratulating on the Elon on the reaching the sistership deal with Rockville, but instead trying to drill on the point of Tsai Ing-wen calling herself the president of Taiwan parentheses ROC. Because I, I've, I've been living in um, the U.S. for almost 20 years and in New York for 10 years. And then I never... You know, spoke of myself as someone who's coming from ROC because nobody wants to send number one what ROC is, or very highly likely that they're gonna mistake me as coming from PRC, which is China, and that's the last thing I really want to identify myself with as a as a, as people coming from China. So, if you ask any overseas Taiwanese where they come from, I mean. 10 out of 10 will tell you they are from Taiwan. And also, um, just when the uh, um, President Tsai Ing-wen was uh, inaugurated, I mean, the, the Trump, you know, in receiving a call from uh, Tsai Ing-wen, he says it, Trump refers to her as the president of Taiwan. So it's just an international convention, and I don't think KMT should make such a big deal out of it. Yeah, and I think the KMT is really grasping at straws here. This is a very uh, minor issue to, to latch onto and make a big fuss about. Yet, I think we have seen this numerous times in past years, for example, accusing the Tsai administration of removing the ROC flag from websites, government websites, or mention of the ROC, or uh, accusing the DPP of trying to foment cultural Taiwanese independence and de Um So the claim is that the DPP is trying to uh, push towards removing symbols of the ROC. And, and I think also when, when the DPP raises the issue of transitional justice, it is also then accused of being an attempt to uh, remove you know, ROC identity. Uh, for example, in the debate, it was claimed that, <laughs> in, the, in the KMT primary debate, it was claimed that transitional justice was a way to cut Taiwan off from Chinese culture. Yet at the same time, when we do see people from the KMT, um, they often actually do refer to themselves as, for example, legislators from of, of Taiwan and not the ROC on their own websites or bios or statements. And so it is actually just a, a grabbing onto an issue to try to attack Thai. And I think this is, again, related to elections. You're trying to, they're trying to fan up ROC nationalism to, support, to rally up their base, to claim that their sense of identity is under attack by Thai in this, this signing this agreement. And so it is a, it's a very small issue to latch onto. I mean, there's these general attempts to attack Thai. And of course, Terry Gore this week tried to attack Tsai over the very same reason, Xiao. He, right. offered, he offered her a baseball cap that had the <laughs> ROC flag on, but it was a pink one, not a blue one like this. <laughs> and he, he shouted at the TV cameras, I tried to give it a tying when and she's gone to the airport without her pink hat with the ROC flag on. She doesn't love the ROC flag because she won't accept my baseball cap. Right, I mean... It- Never probably never occurred to him that you know President Tsai just doesn't want to wear a baseball hat <laughs> or even a pink one. <laughs> yeah, a pink one that was a bit generalizing. Uh, yeah. well, it was yeah. really, yeah. really, really generalizing. <laughs> I, I don't think President Tsai likes a pink hat, but I, I just want to point out that KMT's love for ROC, the flag or, or the name, is really contrived because they always wave this issue in front of DPP or, or the pro Taiwan camp, but. When they go to China, I mean, where is ROC? I mean, do do Terry Crow does Terry Crow wear the hat when he goes into China? Um, any representative who visits China, do they raise the issue of ROC being, you know, a a a, a country? Uh, no, I mean, they always, you know, go on the, the assumption that Taiwan is part of China, and it's not even the Republic of China; it's the People's Republic of China. So I would just be very, very enraged when they are always accusing, you know, President Tsai Ing-wen of uh, of abandoning the title of President of ROC when it's them themselves that that's abandoning ROC when they go to China.
Yeah, and they do it even in Taiwan themselves. Um, sometimes when Chinese officials come over, for example, in 2008, with a series of events that provoked the wild strawberry movement, the ROC flag was removed from places where Chinese officials were visiting. And so the ROC doesn't even apparently... It's not even able to wave the flag of the ROC within within Taiwan itself, and so it's just contradictory moves by the KMT. I think just the usual hypocrisy. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. Now, talks of a pay rise for public sector workers emerged on Wednesday with charges that the proposed salary hikes are related to next year's elections. Well, there's a turnout for the books, paying people more money because they want to get votes. Now, the Directorate General of Personnel Administration Salary Review Committee, well, it met on Wednesday, like I said, but it failed to reach a consensus on the issue. Now, some members of the committee argue that pay hikes for the public sector would put pressure on cash-strapped local governments, while others argue that increasing government workers' salaries will stimulate economic growth and bring about a similar move in the private sector. But they all agreed one thing, simple, and that was dead simple, and that was that they passed the buck. And they said Premier Su Jung Chung should make the final decision on any pay rises for the public sector. So, Xiao, there you go. Would public sector pay rises put pressure on cash-strapped local governments, or would they stimulate the economy and bring out similar moves in the private sector? Um, it's always a thorny issue to talk about this just right before election, right? I mean, because on one hand, I mean, people argue the, the, the pay should be annually adjusted according to uh, inflation. So a pay a hike or pay raise uh, should be reasonable. But on the other hand, when you you know bring out this issue just right before election, you're always you know run a risk of being accused of uh, trying to buy votes, especially um, the public sector workers are the one who are don't right now are not harboring you know favorable favorable opinions about the uh, governing party the DPP so um this issue is very very I mean, touchy and then of course i i think it's it's best to be uh deal with after the election yeah, and that is always the accusation because, yeah, as mentioned, uh, this will be accused of being a political move, of being of trying to bribe workers. Um, the KMT has definitely leveraged on this because of the fact that there are many public sector workers who are unhappy with the Thai administration for its pension reforms. Um, and I think Tsai is also in a kind of double bind here because either she does do this to try to win back the votes of uh, public sector workers, which it already might just be too little too late at this point, uh, or... I mean, because also she also has the need to deal with pension reform down the line. And, and, and so just having done that and then raising the, sec- the salaries of public sector workers as a, um, a way to kind of, you know, get their votes, it just leads her, it, it opens her to the accusation that she's kind of flip-flopped on the issues again. I mean, pay raises are not the same thing as pension reform, but it, these issues are connected. And it, it, the, the issue is that the government is in need of management of its finances in a much more transparent or, or a way that is sustainable for the long run. And the accusation, that also just becomes a political issue, which the KMT will attack it on then. Um, and so I think the time administration, whatever it does, it will become attacked in some form. Uh, the decision probably, it, does, it probably is a smart decision to have Sue make uh to have him make that decision and then you know argue that this is needed um so the government can take credit for whatever the results are but it's also just no matter what the results are the government will be attacked 
Right, the proposed pay rise is reportedly set to be between 3 and 5% and could take effect next year if the Premier okays it. Now it will cover civil servants, public school teachers and military personnel. But Xiao, is the famous, infamous, whatever you want to call it, iron rice bowl still something that should exist in 2019? Well, in a way, uh, yes, because um, the public sector workers, when they got the job, they expect their job to be solid and then the pay to be, you know, going up and then they will have a comfortable retirement. Um, but the, the thing, tricky thing about this pay raise is that the, the central government is making a decision, but it's coming out of the local government's pocket. So a lot of local governments are very, very strapped in terms of their budget. For example, in Taipei City, I mean, um, there was a debate about uh, resuming the uh, the stipend, the Chongyaojin Laojin, and where to for old people, um, people 65 and older, to get uh, annually stipend of about 1,500 uh, Taiwan dollars. And we, the, the Taipei city government can't even afford that. So let alone, I mean, paying the extra um, pay raise for the uh, uh, public sector workers. So, I mean, I was, somebody needs to find a way to make, make sure this uh, all works out. Yeah, the so-called iron rice bowl, I think, originates in the fact that the KMT really wanted to make sure that teachers, members of the military, and public servants were on its side. And so they were kind of a privileged class under the KMT, and, and this is a class that is loyal to the KMT oftentimes. Uh, and so then the question is, how, what does the time institution do? Because it, does, it wants to ensure that public sector workers do not have this kind of political uh, fixation or, or sympathy towards the KMT with the view that they will benefit from the KMT. Yet it also does not want to, it wants to have them on, it wants to win them over to its side. And so then it's a double bind. Does it try to, uh, you know, give them many benefits to preserve the iron rice ball and try to win their loyalty? Or does it try to dismantle the system, uh, this institution in which they were provisionally class and, and uh, to try to ensure that in the future public servants and so forth are not so pan-blue leaning? Um, and I think that's, it's, a, it's a challenge. And I think it's a challenge that goes back to a lot of these issues with regards to the authoritarian period that Tsai administration is actually dealing with. And of course, Xiao, the government also has to face the private sector, which, of course, when you give the public sector pay rises, the private sector's going, hang on a minute, I'm a bin man. I work yeah. for a private company. Where's my pay rise? That's right. So, I mean, especially in the, uh, in the younger workers' generation, I mean, we, they are being paid uh, far less and then they don't see any their wages going up anytime soon. So I think the, the real um, subject is to how you sti- stimulate economy so that the private sector grows um, before you actually put a lot of money into the public sector and then hiking all those pays. Because, uh, I mean, somebody needs to do something to make sure that the economy is growing, you know, year after year to make sure that uh, all the, sec- the, the, the workers have a, has a good, you know, right, raising their wages. Yeah, and I think it's already an issue that's become a major issue for the time industry in the past few years, particularly after the changes to the Labor Standards Act. So that was an issue that had to do with uh, just in general the low salaries and long working hours facing workers in Taiwan, uh, private and so forth. And so I think uh, this is an issue that the time mission, it just returns the economy fundamentally um, with regards to private sector workers. And then um, there's all these attempts to kind of, you know, one side, depending on policy for private or public workers, that will create conflict between both sides. Um, and so, you know, you'll have these criticisms back and forth. 
Right, and moving on to some cross-strait issues. The dispute over how Taiwan is portrayed on a sculptured globe on display at the London School of Economics was finally resolved this week, with the school saying that Taiwan will remain distinct colour-wise from China, but the name Taiwan will be given an asterisk. There you go, Taiwan gets an asterisk. Now, apparently the asterisk has been placed next to Taiwan's name on the globe to suggest there is a territorial dispute. Now, of course, we talked about this in March, after the sculpture, which was created by... A Turner Prize-winning artist, Mark Wallinger, was put on display at the London School of Economics. Now, it was heavily criticised by Chinese students there at the time because Taiwan was a different colour to China. So an asterisk, Brian. LSE have dealt with it by putting an asterisk <laughs> next to Taiwan's name. It's a compromise measure, and I think it is actually the result of Taiwanese students in London that raised the issue that, that there was actually this compromise measure. Otherwise, LSE might have just gone with uh, the demands from Chinese student associations. Um, Chinese students in London actually had to demonstrate to be able to attend the meetings to discuss the future of this globe. Um, That's interesting because this globe actually has has had controversy not regarding just Taiwan, but also Israel and Palestine um, because of how you depict disputed territories. That that always will come up with anything uh, depicting geography. And and this is an essential of a a prominent university. And of course, it is is Thai, Thai England went to LSE, and so it becomes a matter of national pride. Um, it was surprising, though, actually, that for a long time this issue just dropped under the radar. People were, were assuming that it had already been changed, but there were not a lot of news reports uh, about the fact that that actually the color had not been changed and that LSE had just kind of waited on the issue. And then now they announced uh, that they were going to put this asterisk there. I mean, I was in London two weeks ago, and, and at that point they hadn't put the asterisk on there, but it was already it, the color hadn't been changed. So no one got a pen out and went and changed it? I think uh, there might have been attempts to do that. but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, Xiao, could you could you argue that putting an asterisk and saying a territorial dispute is even does more harm than good in the long run for Taiwan? Because of course, Taiwanese people go, "Hang on a minute, it's not a territorial dispute at all. We live there." Right. I mean, that's uh, it's always what happens in in overseas when when you have uh, you know all these Chinese influences. I mean, um, you can see it everywhere because uh, there's this report. Uh, by um, some Hoover that the, the Chinese influence is over all over the globe. And one of the penetration points is they influence schools by, you know, number one, donating a lot of monies. Number two, they may set up, you know, something like Confucius Institute. So they are actually very, very influential in terms of uh, how to, to what the, the school, you know, administrative works. So, I mean, this issue is very, very common. I mean, in UACSD, um, Chinese students protest uh, when they invite some controversial speakers to talk about human rights in, 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 in Tibet. Or, uh, and some schools, uh, Chinese students are protesting about, um, you know, people from Taiwan to speak in their, their school um, uh, graduations. So this is, I mean, I mean, you may argue that these student protests are not genuine students. They may have um, some influences from um, Chinese government behind and then maybe funded by uh, operatives from, uh, you know, all these institutes that China is funding. So this is very... Um, common practices and uh, I'm not surprised to see that happening in LSSE. Mm, yeah, and it's it's a it's a question because I think uh, there are a lot of Chinese student organizations out there, but how much of them are actually organic? Uh, how much of it actually is the state or the Chinese embassy actually directing student organizations to do things? And it's a question with the uh, schools that have 
uh, large Chinese student populations, and that is on the rise with with increasing amounts of Chinese students studying elsewhere. And then it also branches into questions of then free speech. Is it there? Uh, is it actually? Do they have the right to say this, uh, or is it actually that they're being made to do this by the government and so forth? And so, with this sculpture, this flagged a lot of these issues because it was prominently in the middle of a campus, and and um, it, London obviously has increasing amounts of Chinese students studying there. And so, how does the school handle this? And again, there's a question, particularly for cash-strap schools. Then uh, they might worry about Chinese donors pulling money or not having money coming from. Let's say the Confucius Institute or or the Chinese government and so forth, and so then you might be uh, willing to actually just uh, throw Taiwan under the bus, and that is the case. I mean, there are actually some schools in which uh, Taiwanese are not allowed to have student organizations because of uh, the claim the school adheres to one China policy, and so it, 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 that is actually quite interesting that Taiwanese are not allowed to. They're allowed to have Taiwanese American, for example, student organizations, but not Taiwanese organizations, and. So then, it is. It is a it, that's that's a call of uh, the administration, and in this case, it's interesting that LSD decided to try to steer this middle ground with an asterisk. Yeah, and I there think they'll go. still get attacked for it. Probably. <laughs> Maybe someone will scratch off the asterisk. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> but no dispute. Yeah, I'm not recommending anyone goes to London and does that. Anyway, before we go, the sports administration this week announced that the government is looking to increase corporate tax breaks for companies that opt to buy into professional sporting teams. Now, the statement comes after the Chinese professional baseball league champions, the Lemigo. Monkeys announced last week that it was seeking a new owner. Now, the Monkeys' current owner, Merry Yard International, has said it's looking to offload the team due to its financial burden on the company as it's spent some 100 million NT per year over the past 16 years on the Monkeys. Now, Merry Yard is in fact the smallest company out of all the ones that own Taiwan's four professional baseball teams, the other three teams being owned by the Fubon Group, the China Trust Group, and Uni President, all of which are rather large companies. So, Brian, do you think large companies buying into local sporting teams will propel Taiwan's sporting excellence to an international level? Um, I kind of doubt it because there are only four teams, so there's not a lot of competition there, actually. And it also does seem like a very strange aspect of Taiwanese sports to me that a large company sponsor a team and have their name directly next to the team. Uh, you know, you see this in sports anywhere in the world. Stadiums, for example, have the names of companies in them and that kind of thing, and, and there's advertising and so forth, and so it is a way of making money. Yet Taiwan has a phenomenon of... of sporting teams having the name of the company in their name and then sometimes that company gets in trouble for example for food uh, safety scandals and, and then the team sees a decline in popularity and and so forth um, and then when a team changes names then it changes hands then you have to change the name of the team and so I think it, it's, it's an odd uh, issue of the corporate influence in, in sporting in Taiwan and I think uh, that there are also just all these issues with you know sporting organizations and, and that kind of thing um, so I'm not actually sure it's a good idea to, to allow uh, businesses to have more power through, through sports almost. Yeah, I think that's another example of uh, the government patching, you know, wherever, wherever it hurts instead of um, trying to create a, a healthy environment for the uh, professional sports to, uh, to thrive. Because, uh, I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the, the professional you know, baseball, I mean, the, the reason that the, the, the audience that people are going to watch the games are dropping year after year is because I mean all those scandals with uh, with gambling and all that um, so if the government is serious about this they should really push through these uh, um, you know you know, sports reforms to actually look at the 
fundamental problems of why you know the best players are not being kept uh, in a country and they always have to leave the country and in, in search of better opportunities. So I think that's where to actually uh, get the Taiwan has a much more healthy and robust uh, sports culture and not just to give out you know task breaks because I mean only in the sports team is already a, a very text is already a very good text shelter. So on top of that, you're still giving out tax breaks. It just uh, makes makes no sense at all. I, yeah, I wonder if then there's an incentive for companies to to acquire sports teams for those tax breaks, um, <laughs> and it becomes another thing. I mean, that's the the reason why companies want sports teams is for advertising, but then you can also get a tax breaks out of it. I mean, I'm not sure that's the way to stimulate uh, sporting competition in in Taiwan. Of course, no stadiums here though. We don't have stadiums. Are all called the Xinjiang Stadium. Mm-hmm. The, the Taiju Intercontinental Stadium, the stadiums here haven't actually been bought out by the companies yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think a different uh, system of organizing things. I mean, do, just maybe... Do you think that's coming, though? Maybe we'll have the, the, the Fubon Taipei Dome. It's it's possible, but I think... Uh, I mean, a lot of it has to do with city governments, and so if city governments are willing to relinquish this to to uh, companies, then that might happen. But then that also brings its, its, its own set of issues, I think. Yeah, I mean, right. The city governments and I now are responsible for building those stadiums. So I'm not sure if they want to privatize it. I mean, if they want to privatize anything, I think they should start with the parks, not the, the stadiums. Privatizing <laughs> the parks. Yeah, the parks. I mean, well, just there, uh, there goes all the trees. Then. No, I mean, just like Bryant Park. I mean, it's a beautiful trees there, but it's it's pretty good run, well run. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Xiao Xing Sheng. Good night, everyone. And Brian Hugh. Good night. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.